Let's pray as we stand. Lord God, our Father, would you teach us to bless your name through the joys, through the sorrows of this life, recognizing your hand as you give and as you take away. Lord, might our hearts choose to say each day, blessed be your glorious name. And we pray now in your name, you would open your word to us, Speak into our hearts the words we need to hear. Lord, that you would be glorified in us and we might be satisfied in you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's so good to be back. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. And... As we look at Psalm 63 together, I'd like to begin with a question for you. And that is this. Have you ever in life been through a period of time that you could describe as being like a desert or like a wilderness? A season maybe in life where you've been led by God to somewhere you haven't been before. Maybe somewhere surprising, somewhere you weren't expecting to go. The Psalms in their entirety describe many seasons of life, many chapters and different expressions of what it looks like to live with the Lord our gods. But when an individual psalm, such as Psalm 63, gives us some context into which it was written, it was important for us to take a moment to think about that before we begin to mine its depths. We're told in the instruction that the psalm is a psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. The deserts or the wilderness of Judah, same word in Hebrew. And we're to think not the the Sahara, as we might think of when we think of deserts, but rather a dry and arid, desolate, rocky, mountainous terrain. I've got a picture for you on the screen of the deserts of Judah. And here... David finds himself not on vacation, you understand. He's not gone on some sort of dune safari, but rather he's been led into the desert as a result of a coup by his eldest, uh, by one of his sons, rather, Absalom. I think that's most likely the experience that has led David here into the desert because of how he describes himself in verse 11 as the king. You may recall that episode in David's life where a messenger in 2 Samuel 15 has rushed into his presence and giving him a quite understated message. He said to David, the hearts of the people are with Absalom. But David understands the subtlety. He gets the subtext. And so he says to all who were with him in Jerusalem at the time, come, we must flee for none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately. Or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. It is metaphorically and quite literally a wilderness or desert experience for David. It was unexpected. It was a tragedy striking when everything was in place. Everything was there for him. And then it got turned upside down. And I imagine some of you will know that feeling, right? I've always been one of those annoying people who falls asleep within moments of laying my head on the pillow 
My wife can begin a conversation, but I'll be far gone already. Then a couple of years ago, two or three years ago, I had this chapter in my life where anxiety and insomnia struck. I pray it doesn't return, but that sort of thing, that sort of wilderness period in life changes you. It comes unexpectedly. It comes unwantedly. And yet God can achieve things in those times. So if you wanted a summary of Psalm 63, we might say in the words of those, that well-known theologian, F. Prince, this is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down. So if you've got a moment, sit right there. Let's see how David deals with his despair. Because that's what he does. He deals with a situation of despair, but he does so in a quite unexpected way. Now, of course, no psalm in the scriptures will at any one time describe the experiences that all of us are going through, that all of us are facing. Some of us will be sat here this morning thinking, I, I can't really think of a desert experience in life. Can't really think of a wilderness season. In fact, life is, life is good. There's so much to praise God for. If that's you, praise God. But I wonder whether the way this psalm can be useful for you this morning is in terms of preparation, preparation for your soul. For each of us are told to cultivate in our hearts a, a pattern, a, a pattern, a rhythm of life and, and relational life with the Lord. That prepares us for seasons of desert. Because if we live long enough, all of us will go through th seasons like this. Not because God is not good, not because he is not faithful, but because the fulfillment of the Christian life always lies in the future. Today, there will be days of joy and sorrow, as we sung about earlier. And particularly if to date in life and your experience at the moment is that the Lord is blessing you with many good things, and rather than taking them away, you seem to be receiving in abundance, then I think in the words of this psalm, we can see that even in those situations in life, when we receive much, we will find there is still a yearning for something more deep within the Lord Jesus called it living water in John's gospel. So first this morning, as we turn to the words of Psalm 63, if you're able to follow along, please do. We see God, my desire. God, my desire. David finds himself in the wilderness, and he knows at that moment where to turn, where he must turn. He says, you, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. It's as though David's physical circumstances, they begin to give rise to the poetry that he finds welling up within himself. Physically thirsty, he reflects too on his spiritual thirst, his need to know God and turn to God in this season. And he can do that in the wilderness because he's cultivated in his heart intimacy with God that equips him and enables him to sing these songs of praise even in the desert. And I think that's one of the surprising things as we read through this psalm, that wilderness and songs of praise can and should go hand in hand. For you, God, are my God. Commentator Derek Kidner, whose words are always uh, better than mine, writes this. The longing of these verses is not the groping, 
of a stranger, feeling his way towards God, but the eagerness of a friend, almost of a lover, to be in touch with the one he holds dear. Often, particularly, I think, in early stages in the Christian life, we talk about becoming a Christian as entering into relationship with God, don't we? We use that relational terminology. And that's a right thing to do. For from the moment God first spoke to Abraham, entering into covenant with him, God's promise to his people has always been, I will be their God. We're reminded by the writer of Hebrews, where he quotes Jeremiah of the new covenant. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, from kings like David to commoners like you and I. And one of the questions I think this psalm gets us to wrestle with, one of the realities that we're being asked to confront here in this psalm, is, is that how we're living out our Christian lives in terms of relational encounter with the Lord? Or are we sometimes tempted to reduce it to a more transactional reality? Even in the wilderness seasons of life, our Lord Jesus moves towards us in love, desires to meet with us in that place. We're not to think of faith as simply receiving doctrinal truth and then accepting those things, responding, God grants us stuff for the future and life continues largely the same. No, as Christ draws towards us, as Christ receives us and draws us up into his grace, we continually respond day by day in grace and faith towards him too. We come to desire the one who first desired us. And the reason David can do that now in this season is because of what he's known in the past, the rhythms of life he's cultivated deep in his soul. He says, verse 2, I've seen you in the sanctuary. I've beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. David looks back on his lived experience. He looks back on times he's known in the past, during times of worship in the tabernacle, where he has seen something of the invisible God. Now, yes, the Psalms are, are poetic, but there's something going on here because the Old Testament worship pattern was a very visual experience. As the Israelites would have entered the temple, it would have been a rich visual tapestry before them. Animal sacrifices happening in front of their eyes. People singing songs and reading liturgy. And in seeing all of this that goes on in the tabernacle, David has come to understand something of God's power and God's glory in offering salvation to sinners through sacrifice. But more and further and deeper David goes in these words of the psalm. He says quite astonishingly in verse 3, because your love is better than life. I mean, let that penetrate into your heart for a moment. Your love is better than life. I mean, isn't that an astonishing thing to say? Isn't that a, a wonderful, quite mind-blowing thing to say? I mean, think about what it is that he's doing there. 
How is it possible that God's love could be better than our very lives? And I think one of the ways the rest of the Bible answers that question is because of how it endures forever. The things we enjoy in this life, many of which are good, and it's right we enjoy them, they often slip through our fingers like sand, don't they? We'd sort of like to bottle them, but we can't quite hold on to them. We'd like to go back. We can often do so only via photo or video memory. But David knows that God's love lasts forever. It sees us safely through this life and into the life of eternity. I think what David's getting at here is a similar perspective on life to the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, who says in the book of Acts, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, Paul is not saying there that his life is inconsequential, that it's, you know, immaterial. No, it's filled with meaning and value and significance and purpose. But what he is saying is that, but in comparison to all that is in store for him, through being united with Christ, that that is so much better by far than all the treasures of this life, that he can see his life now held lightly. For all its joys and sorrows are merely the blink of an eye in light of eternity. That's never to reduce our experiences here and now, but simply to see them and choose to see them in the right perspective. So this week, I was listening to a friend of mine um, in my midweek small group sharing something of her testimony of the last 10 years of life. And I won't go into detail for obvious reasons, but it was a testimony of a decade of tragedy, of events happening in her life that have been painful and devastating. And yet it wasn't a testimony of sorrow it was a testimony where she found that when God was all she had, God was indeed all she needed. It was deeply moving, but it wasn't a tragedy. And that is David's song in the desert. Deeply moving, but not a tragedy. Because his confidence is that the Lord's love is better than life. And so he says, I will praise you. It's like I will choose to praise you as long as I live because God is my desire. Secondly, God my deliverer. Look with me at verse 6. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. If the wilderness had sharpened David's desire for God, then here his wakefulness gives him further reason to turn to God. He does so, he says, through the watches of the night. It's a little expression that I'm sure many of us are familiar with, expressing the slow progress sometimes of those nighttime hours, lying awake watching the clock as it doesn't seem to move very much or very quickly, thinking to yourself, why, why can't I sleep? Sleep is what I want to be doing, but the minutes are passing so slowly. It's that idea here. On my bed, I remember you. 
What does David do? He sings. He clings. He trains his heart that he might redeem the frustration and instead turn it to a moment of intimacy with God. But notice the reason he can do that. Not because of some superhuman endeavor, but rather this is God's grace to him. Or as he puts it, I cling to you, your right hand upholds me. I think what he's getting at there is like the parents who turns to their child as they go across a busy road and says, hold on to my hand now, please, darling. And as we look at the, the couple making their way across the road, each hold the hand of the other, each cling to the other. But of course, we know whose hand is making the difference at that moment in time. The parent can quickly swoop up the child and rescue them from any danger, providing them ultimate security because God holds us tighter than we hold him. David holds on to the God who has taken hold of him, who has lifted him and planted him on the rock. God, my deliverer. And then God, my hope, verse 9. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They'll be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Periods of desert or wilderness sometimes feel that we are sinking. But David doesn't. He finds that he lands upon the rock even though all he knew has been taken at this moment in time. Why is that? It's because as the Lord's anointed, he is confident that God will vindicate him, that God will prove his faithfulness to him because of the words he has spoken. And that is a pattern we see too in the life of the Lord Jesus as he walks through his ultimate wilderness time in the events of his crucifixion, just before he's sentenced by Pilate to death, he says, however things appear, however bleak this looks for me, God is my deliverer. He says, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the, throne of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus facing his death is supremely confident in vindication, is supremely confident in being delivered, and that his resurrection will show that confidence to be well-placed. Wilderness, then vindication. For David, for Christ, and for the church of God too. Wilderness, then vindication. You see, David's wilderness at this time meant one of two things. Either it was going to be the end of him, or it was going to be the end of his enemies. Only one could prevail. And his confidence is that he will not be put to shame. And so verse 11, the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. True of David, but ultimately, of course, true of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why this psalm is such good news 
for us. That is why, rightly understood and applied, it can lead to us too singing songs through the wilderness, singing songs in the desert. I don't know how your life is. Sometimes when I go through periods of wilderness in life, I don't feel very sure of being vindicated. I can be my fiercest critic. You've got what's coming to you, Pete. You, you made the mistake, you made your bed, you're going to have to lie in it now. And yet, in those times, I remind myself of a few things from this psalm. As John Calvin wrote, our happiness and glory depend entirely on Christ. Or as theologian Christopher Ashe put it more recently, he leads us in desire for the Father. He leads us in delight in the Father. He leads us to confidence in final victory. This is his prayer, and it becomes ours in him. And that perspective on the Psalms, I think, is really important. Because one of the complexities in beginning to pray and sing the Psalms ourselves is we need to remember two things. One, we are not part of the Old Covenant. We are not Old Testament Israelites. We don't inhabit worship in a tabernacle period or temple period. But the whole of the Bible, including the Psalms, ultimately points us to the Lord Jesus. Recall his words in Luke's Gospel, how he says, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms. Everything written about him in Psalm 63. How do we see Christ in this psalm? Well, surely he alone is the one who truly desires God, is delivered by God, and puts his hope fully in God. When we consider him, our eyes are lifted above our own feeble efforts often. Because I don't know about you, but I know in my heart, my desire for Christ fluctuates. Sometimes I get to the end of my day, I lay my head down on the pillow, and I'm so thankful at the words God speaks, the joy that he's given me. But other days, I get to the end of the day, and my desire is simply for sleep. I have little thought for the Lord. And as the watches of the night still sometimes pass slowly for me, I find frustration easier than song. My wife's probably thankful the songs don't come in the night, at least. But the Lord Jesus never had that fluctuation. There wasn't a time when, in his own wilderness experience, he faltered or wavered in his desire, his ultimate confidence that God would vindicate him. We read the Psalms seeing them fulfilled in Christ and becoming our prayer in him. So at those times where you or I feel very, very little confidence that will be vindicated, very little hope for the future, we have to remind ourselves that that was not true of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his hope is mine. His hope is ours in Christ. I've been really helped by Christopher Ashes to short volumes on the Psalms, I think he's right to warn us of the dangers of simply lifting the verses and applying them to ourselves with no contemplation of how they find their fulfillment in Christ. 
Because if we do that, then either we just ignore vast swathes of the Psalms or just ignore them and, and find them too weird to pray, or we find little grace in them. And what I mean by that is this. You could apply this psalm largely as law, couldn't you? David desired God. Do you? Did you, this week, desire God? Really? Truly? Like this? David said God's love is better than life. Is that, is that your testimony? Truly? Maybe we all need to go away and just try a little bit harder to desire God all the more. That we might one day say your love is better than life because at the moment I'm not sure I can say that every day. And you could apply the psalm that way, but I think that would ultimately be crushing. It would crush us. There's little grace in that sort of application. And what about our enemies? And what about other times in the psalms when tough words are spoken? I mean, do we pray of our enemies, those who want to, you know, put me down, may they be destroyed, may they go down to the depths of the earth? Maybe that's how we feel. But I'm not sure any would think of us that's the right way to pray for our enemies, particularly in light of the Lord Jesus saying to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. I don't think he meant pray that they'd be, you know, put to death. You see, without thinking how the Psalms point us, lead us to Christ, we're very selective in how many of the Psalms we're able to pray. But we remember who David is as he pens this Psalm. He is the Lord's anointed. He is the covenant king. His enemies are by definition the Lord's enemies as he represents God to his people and the people to God. You and I are not the Lord's anointed, but Jesus is. He is the true and better son of David, the one who sits on David's throne forever. He is the king who rejoices in God and all who swear by God will glory in him. And there will be a day coming when all of his enemies are finally silenced. And in Christ, we too benefit in his victory. That is our confidence. That is our hope. What does this mean for us as we close? I think it means this. When we get to the end of our day and think, gosh, spiritually dry. I'm not sure how much time I spent desiring God. I'm not sure how much I thought I gave to my hope of glory. When I'm tempted to lie my head down on the pillow and think, Pete, it's been another disappointing day. God's probably a bit, you know, disappointed in you today. We're to think no. No, because there was a life once lived that did desire God fully and truly. There was a life lived in total obedience to God, a life who desired and was delivered and who hoped in God. And God credits me with that life, such that the Father is truly pleased with me at the end of each day because of the fact that he sees me clothed in Christ's righteousness. And so even my small, half-hearted attempts at obedience arouse his compassion and grace as he offers us yet more of himself. And because that is true, because we come into communion with Christ, because we recognize that this ultimately is his song, as he would have sung it himself in the synagogue, 
we recognize that as we offer up to God our small obedience, even that in Christ can be pleasing to God. Frequently in the New Testament, we're reminded of this, that we're not to despair, but look to him and persevere, because our little perseverance pleases our heavenly Father. And what a joy that is to read. So when Paul says in Romans 12, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That's a pleasing act when we offer ourselves to God, however small, however little. This is your true and proper worship. Or Colossians 1, 9 to 10. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through a wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. By grace, we are able to please God. It is in view of his mercy because his right hand holds us. In our wilderness experiences, when we're going through the desert, we will sometimes find that our voices falter and fail. The song dims. And in those moments, we remember that Christ picks up the tune for us, singing it increasingly loudly over us. You are my God, earnestly I seek you. And Father, because that is true, this son or daughter of mine in their desert experience They seek you too. I in them, and they in me. I love how Richard Sibbs put it. Measure not God's love and favor by your own feelings. The sun shines as clearly in the darkest day as it does in the brightest. The difference is not in the sun, but in some clouds which hinder the manifestation of the light thereof. To paraphrase him again slightly, there is more desire and deliverance and hope of glory in him than there is sin in you. So might we do together this morning the one thing Psalm 63 would have us do, and that is glory in Christ our Redeemer. Because isn't it a wonderful thing to be known and loved by him? Isn't it a wonderful thing to know that he will hold us fast? That his right hand lifts us? Whether we are in the wilderness ourselves this morning or simply find ourselves needing to prepare for that day, turn to Christ. Put your trust in him. Receive him, if for the first time, as your savior. Trust in him as your Lord. Glory in him. Because as we shall see one day, his love is indeed better than life. Let's pray together as we close. Father, might we make it our goal to please you, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. Lord, might we see that there was a life lived that was for us, that perfectly desired you, that perfectly hoped in you, and was truly and finally delivered by you. And all that is his 
is ours by faith. We share in all that he has won for us. And from that place, in view of his mercy, we live out our lives, walking through days of blessing and joy, walking through days of blessing and sorrow. May we see in them both your loving kindness to us as you change us to be more like your Son, our Lord Jesus. Might we rise each day early to seek you. Might we lay our heads down in peace, knowing that Christ is our righteousness. And we come to you in his name. We glory in our Redeemer. Might we do that now in song as we close, for we ask it in Jesus' name.